Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 46. Genesis 46. Um, Bobby will be preaching to us next Sunday um, from 1 John. I'll be back uh, the following week uh, to just preach four straight uh, that'll take us through Genesis. Uh, that'll take us up to uh, Palm Sunday. We'll do a, a couple of sermons unique to Palm Sunday and, of course, Easter the following uh, Sunday. Uh, I'll be away for a couple of weeks after that, and then we will get into our next series, which will take us through the summer, which will be through the book of James. Uh, so that's what's coming. Uh, we'll, I'll start that the last Sunday of, of, of April, and that'll lead us up to those, those August sermons on the kingdom of God. So that's what's coming over the next few months here with the preaching ministry. Uh, looking forward to that, that series on James, but we, we need to finish Genesis first. And so we're here this morning with Genesis 46. Now, it's been a few weeks since we've been in Genesis. Let me just remind you where we are. Uh, the reconciliation has not, not completed, but it, it began with Joseph and his brothers in chapter 45. Joseph, I am Joseph. He reveals himself, and they have this sweet reunion uh, with the brothers. And now Joseph has instructed his brothers to go back to Canaan and to get their father Jacob and to bring him and to settle all of God's people outside of the promised land and now in Egypt, more specifically Goshen, which is a part of Egypt. And so our passage this morning is God's people leaving the promised land, and that's significant. And now they are coming to Egypt, and the 400-year the clock has begun, as it were. If you remember back in chapter 15, God told Abraham that his people are going to sojourn in a land that is not theirs for 400 years, and then be delivered and brought back to the promised land. So that, that time frame is beginning in our passage here. And we also see this sweet reunion between Joseph and Jacob, and it will have been roughly 25 years since they had seen each other, and the sweet uh, promises that God reminds Jacob of. Uh, I, I mentioned this some weeks ago, and this is not a huge point, but I do think it, there, there is some significance to it. that this, We've been talking about Joseph a lot, but this is the story of Jacob. Jacob is the patriarch. It's Abraham and Jacob are the two massive characters, if you will, in this uh, in the book of Genesis. And Jacob's life is coming to an end, therefore the time of the patriarchs is coming to an end. And so in the book, as the book of Exodus opens, it's no more about really a particular family, it's now a whole group of people that God is saving for his purposes. Again, just some contextual thematic points to, to highlight. God is our refuge and strength. We see in this passage that God is going to really comfort Jacob with theology. Our theology is meant to be a comfort to us, not, a meant, not meant to be something we argue and debate about all the time, but meant to really comfort us. And so God reminds Jacob of things that he's told him many times before, and it makes him confident and takes his fear away as he goes now into the strange land that is Egypt. With those things in mind, let me read for us Genesis 46. <clears throat> so Israel, Jacob, took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here am I. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand will close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones, and their wives, and their wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan. And came into Egypt. 
Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zoar, Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Yob, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Jaliel. These are the sons of Leah, whom she born to Jacob and Padanaram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad... Ziphion, Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Arodi, and Erali, the sons of Asher, Emnah, Ishva, Ishvi, Beriah, and Sarah, their sister, and the sons of Beriah, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughters, and she bore to Jacob sixteen persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph, and Benjamin, and to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gerah, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, Guni, Jezer, and Shelem. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and the and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. And all the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons, wives, were sixty-six persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. And all the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were seventy. He had sent Judah ahead of them to Joseph to show the way before him to Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. And then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you're still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household, who were in the land of Canaan, have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. O Lord, would you teach us now from your word? Would you help us to behold wondrous things from it? Lord, thank you for your loving kindness to us. Thank you for your reminders you give to us of your promises. And Lord, that we would walk in the confidence of who you are all the days of our life. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Sociologist Charles Taylor wrote a book in 2007 entitled A Secular Age. And in that book, he made the declaration that we live now in a secular age. That's not a profound statement, I don't think, but what he meant by it, I think, is indeed profound. He did not mean that the atheistic or agnostic worldview had somehow pushed out religion or Christianity. Not so, because religion is growing at a tremendous rate all across the world. What he meant was 
is that religion, and more specifically Christianity, has become an option in the life of people in a way that it never had before in his mind. If your religion is an option or just a part of your life that you can opt into on Sundays and then opt out of the rest of the week, Charles Taylor says, you are a secular person. The secularization is the making of Christianity simply as an optional part of life among other worldviews that you may also believe. It's as if you put on the Christian uniform when you step into Sunday worship or a Bible study, and then you remove that uniform as you live the rest of your life. A fruit of this, says Carl Truman in commenting on Charles Taylor's book, a fruit of this is the increasing intolerance of Christianity as the basis for morality and behavior in the public square. Charles Taylor does not say this as a critique of culture. He says this as a critique of Christians. The Christians have acquiesced to this. They have said, I will privatize my religion. I will worship my God in church and by myself. And when I emerge into the public square, into the secular world, I will keep all those things to myself. We see this, don't we, specifically in attitudes towards same-sex marriage. It was one thing years ago when Christians were... Uh, people were critical of Christians for beliefs such as the resurrection or the virgin birth, where they would say, you're silly for believing such things. Christians are no longer seen as silly. We're seen as dangerous for our views of sexuality, marginalized, or even the suggestion of criminalizing such beliefs. Freedom of religion has been a hallmark of our nation from its very beginning, and the toleration of religious differences has been a hallmark of our country, which is no longer true. It's become an implausible argument to suggest that someone's faith ought to impact what they say in the public square. And again, Taylor's not critiquing culture. He's critiquing Christians. Charles Chaput is the Archbishop of Philadelphia. He wrote a book about 10 years ago entitled Strangers in a Strange Land. I do not recommend the book, but I do think his quotation is accurate. He says, democracy... Left to itself does not encourage strong character. It creates self-absorbed people. Democratic man depends heavenly on public opinion as the source of his own convictions. Public opinion, then, is the proof or disproof of any institution or belief's legitimacy. In effect, a legitimate opinion exists only because it's widely held. And it's through public opinion that a democratic republic such as our own, tyranny does not proceed through violence and physical coercion, it leaves the body unharmed, and it goes straight to the soul. Chaput is correct. We live in a world, in a nation more specifically, we don't have to be so concerned about the physical harm that our government might place upon us, and yet our soul is no less in danger because of secularization, where we as Christians opt to only take seriously our faith when we are gathered amongst believers. And we tend to take the uniform off or we leave the convictions behind as we go out into the world. It ought not be so. I disagree with Taylor on one point. He suggests that this is a struggle unique to our generation. I don't think so. I think this is a struggle unique to all generations and all time. This text shows us, however, that Jacob does not live in a world where his belief in God is something that he is going to opt into or then opt out of. 
He is afraid because he's being dropped from the promised land where there's unique protections into Egypt where there is paganism and secularism all around him. What's he going to do? Is God going to take care of him? Indeed, he is. Our faith in God and the fact that we are children of God is it's not what we do. It's who we are. It's not a uniform we put on. It's truly our identity. We are God's children. And what we believe about his word impacts all of who we are. The suggestion that some have of Christians, you need to leave your beliefs at the door when you come and discuss things in the secular world, we cannot do that. As we confess in our catechisms, the word of God is our only infallible rule of faith and practice. It is who we are, not simply what we choose to do. And yet we are like Jacob. We are strangers in a strange land. But God is with us, and his promises are sure for us as they were for him. And he will bring us up out of this strange land one day, just as he does the Israelites, this time not just into an earthly promised land, but into a heavenly promised land. What's Jacob going to do? What's his family going to do now that they are leaving some of the comforts of the promised land and going now into Egypt? Is the faith going to be something that they now opt out of because they're in a different place or in a dangerous place? Are they going to cling tightly to their God? Well, let's find out. Number one, Jacob's reliance. Two points this morning, Jacob's reliance and then Jacob's reunion with his son Joseph. As I mentioned in the beginning, the 400-year clock is beginning here. It will be about 430 years until God comes and delivers Israel out of Egypt some 470 years until they come back to this promised land. Now, they will come back very briefly at the end of Genesis in order to bury Jacob, uh, but they will not occupy it in any sense for nearly 500 years. One reason that Jacob may be afraid to go to Egypt is the fear or apprehension he has about giving up that which God has promised him and his descendants, namely the promised land. We know that Jacob is afraid because of the words that God uses, don't be afraid. <laughs> By implication, Jacob is afraid. Well, there's probably, there's probably lots of reasons that he is. He's afraid to give up the promised land, the uncertainty of what life in Egypt's going to be like, the fact that he's 130 years old, making a tremendously difficult journey. There's lots of reasons in his mind to fear. So he packs up all of his things and they're on their way out of town, as it were, and they stop in Beersheba. This is the very edge of the promised land, the very southern edge, and that's where he stops to worship. That's where Abraham had made a covenant with Abimelech. That's where God had uniquely uh, presented himself to Isaac and given Isaac all the promises that he had given to Abraham. There's, this is a place of importance, is what I'm trying to suggest here. On the edge of the promised land... Jacob stops. He worships probably at the very altar that his father Isaac had made. And it's there that God speaks these words of comfort. Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here am I. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. There's a few times in the Bible where God calls out to somebody and uses their name twice. If you remember, I try to, to remind you from time to time that repetition in the Bible is, lets you know that something's really important about to be said. 
Abraham, Abraham. You remember that from chapter 22 when God's stopping Abraham from killing his son Isaac? Samuel, Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 3, when Samuel thinks it's Eli who's calling out to him, it's actually God. Speak, for your servant is listening. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? God says this to Saul as he's on the road to Damascus and saving him. It's his conversion experience. There's something unique about the double name, and, and I think the, what's unique here is the comfort God is offering unto Jacob. He is justifiably afraid. Egypt is intimidating. They are the world's superpower. There is paganism. There is pantheism everywhere. What are they going to do? How are they going to be cared for? Jacob's been afraid before. He had to flee for his life on several occasions. He had that reunion with Esau where he was terribly afraid. And what has God told Jacob each time? I will be with you. It's always his words of comfort. I will be with you. It's his words of comfort that he means to give all of us today, no matter what. I will be with you. He doesn't say, I will make everything turn out for your huge benefit. <laughs> uh, everything will be happy. No, I will be with you. It's Emmanuel, God with us. He is close and near. And it is what comforts Jacob in this passage. I'm going with you. In other words, Jacob, you need to know this. There are not boundary markers to my presence and my sovereignty. It's everywhere. I was with you in Mesopotamia, I was with you in Canaan, and I'm going to be with you in Jacob, uh, in, in Egypt. Don't fear. Don't be afraid. And all the things that I promised Abraham are still true for you. I'm still going to make you a great nation, he says. I'm still going to make you great. What's interesting, and this, is, this would be a theological point to flesh out, I'm just going to make a couple of comments about it. In roughly 200 years, God's people have gone from two people to 70. That's some pretty moderate growth. Over the next 400 years, they're going to go from 70 to about 2 million in the midst of very difficult circumstances. Kaboom! God's going to, to explode their, their greatness, right? And they really are going to turn into a great, numerical, numerically speaking, nation. And it's in the midst of the hardship that he's going to do that. There's, there's a theological point there. <laughs> Perhaps is it in the midst of the hardship where God really is growing you most. That will be a point for next, for chapter 47. Also do not fear, Jacob. I myself will go to Egypt with you. I've made this point. God knows no territorial constraints, as one commentator said. Indeed, that's true. Thirdly, do not fear because I will also bring you up again. That won't be true for Jacob specifically, but it will be true of Jacob's descendants. You're going to Egypt, but not forever. I'm going to come and deliver you and take you up out of here and back to the promised land once again. You will be a stranger in a strange land, but I'm going to deliver your people from this. And he does. And don't be afraid, Jacob, because Joseph's hand is going to close your eyes. It probably entered into his mind, what if I get to Egypt and I'd been lied to again? Joseph really wasn't alive. Or he's died in between the time I heard about this and the time that I have arrived. This is a, just is a unique kindness from God unto Jacob. 
Jacob, you're going to see Joseph, and not only that, he's going to close your eyes as you die. What a sweet, a sweet promise unto Jacob here. What do we see from Jacob? Do you think he wants to go to Egypt? No, he doesn't want to go to Egypt. But he does. Why? Because he trusts in God. Everything is kind of against the grain for him to uproot from this place and to go somewhere else. But he does it because he trusts in God. He wants to see his son again. You need to see this, I think, as an act of faith unto God on the part of Jacob. He is obedient in response to God's word here. And he's taking this long journey, going all the way down to Egypt. They're in the midst of a famine. This is a difficult move, and yet he does it. And God reminds him of all the great blessings of the past that are now true also for him. The most notably of those, most notable of those is God's presence. And this is going to start something for God's people. As they wander through the wilderness, they live in tents. So does God. He lives in a tabernacle. They're going to be firmly planted back in the promised land. That's going to be their place. And then Solomon's going to build a temple. And that's God in their midst. They're always going to have this reminder. And for us, it's God is with us in the person of Jesus Christ. He's with you, dwelling in you, dwelling amongst you. He is always with us. Don't be afraid. He's with you. I don't know if you are easily given over to fear and anxiety. Maybe you are. I am. I'm easily given over to fear and anxiety, particularly anxiety. That's the one for me. What's going to happen? What's going to... This uh, stage of life, this thing that I believe God wants me to do, I don't know where we're going. I don't know what's going to happen. And so I'm anxious about it, and I spend a tremendous uh, amount of time worrying. I lose sleep. I become ineffective in my life. I'm not a good as, I don't pay attention to my family as I ought to because I'm worrying about stuff, wasting my time, quite frankly. Do you, are you ever given over to such things as well? God is with you. And you say, well, it would be nice if God would come and present himself to me as he has to Jacob. He has. He gives you that same promise through his word. I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. I'm not going to tell you in advance all the places you're going to go and all the things that are going to happen, but I will be right there with you. That is a tremendous comfort. He goes on to promise Jacob, I'm going to bring you up again. That promise is true for us. We are going and currently living in a strange land, and one day God will return and bring us up out of here to live forever with him. It's a physical reality for Israel. It is a spiritual reality for us. We often comment and discuss on how great and awesome was God's work to deliver Israel out of Egypt. This wonderful redemption and salvation event of the Old Testament may be what we don't think about quite often. God didn't just deliver them from Egypt. He brought them into Egypt. He put them there so that he could then deliver them from it. It's one of the difficult things sometimes in thinking about our own sinfulness and evil and suffering in this world. God allowed it. He allowed the bondage. He allowed the bad decisions that we made through Adam and Eve to happen so that he could deliver us from that and glorify himself. 
everything about this life and this world is about glory unto God. Why did God bring them into that difficult thing? So that he could deliver them and do good for them and that they would worship him. Isn't that how God often works? He tries us, but it's for our good and it's for his glory. Secondly, we see Jacob's reunion. Jacob's departure from Canaan, as I mentioned a a few minutes ago, and really his death, but sort of the departure from the promised land. This is the end of the patriarchal period. Uh, We're moving into sort of a new uh, uh, section of God's word where it's a people, okay, and not just a person or a family. And another theological issue is brought up here, I think, something that we mentioned back in chapter 3. It's the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And so many times already and so many times to come in the scriptures, the seed of the woman seems to be in jeopardy. How is God going to care for the seed of the woman, the seed of Christ, the line of Christ? The seed of the serpent seems to be so dominant and seems to be winning. And one of the main symbols of Egypt is a serpent. How's God going to care for his people? Well, he always does. Jacob and his family arrive in, in, in Egypt and in Goshen, and he has this wonderful reunion with his son, Joseph. They hug, they weep. Everyone is, uh, all the family is there able to witness this wonderful reunion. And Jacob looks at Joseph and says, Now let me die since I have seen your face and I know that you are alive. It, it sounds a lot like what Simeon says in Luke chapter 2 when he is able to hold baby Jesus and he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. There's a lot of similarities, I think, to those two stories. Jacob gets to hold his son, doesn't he? His temporal or earthly savior, we might say. Joseph had so much to do giving food and helping out his family. Simeon holds the son, the son of God, the eternal savior. And both can now die in peace. God's people are brought, then they were protected in the midst of Egypt. They are able to live separate. They don't have the pressures of giving in to other religions. Joseph, there's still a famine going on. In fact, we're only about halfway through the famine at this point. And Joseph is giving them all the things that they need. This is the most fertile land likely in the world. They're able to take care of the livestock there. We'll see in chapter 47 that Pharaoh also tasked God's people with taking care of their livestock. So they have, a, they have jobs to do. This is wonderful blessing from God. Yes, there's going to come a day, not long from then, that we read about in Exodus chapter 1 where it says, And there arose a king in Egypt who knew not Joseph. Things are good now. They won't always be that way as, as Egypt will turn against God's people as they grow more and more and more. And yet God will take care of them then as well. And we see Moses and all of God's people who sing together in Exodus chapter 15, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. This is where we're going. We're on the very front end of this. God is going to deliver them, and God's people, is, they're going to see the greatness of their God. He has become our salvation. And this is the same God that we serve. Are you fearful? I asked that question a minute ago. Let me ask it again, but in a different way. Are you fearful? 
Are you fearful about your life? Do you wonder sometimes, God, have you really saved me from my sins? He has. If you have called upon the name of the Lord, he is protecting you and caring for you. And one day he will come again and take you to be with him to the place that he now prepares for us. God is doing great and mighty things in Westminster Presbyterian Church, in the kingdom of God, and indeed even in your own life. He is concerned about you. He's not just saying he's with us, though he is saying that. He's saying he's with you. He is with you and promises to be with you. He is with us in the United States. He is with believers worshiping all around the world even today. He is, he's with them individually and them collectively as the church. What a blessing. And we are all marching to that great day when he is going to deliver us from this place into the great and final promised land where we will dwell together forever. That is our hope and that is our confidence and that is the reason we don't fear. God will go on to promise and to remind not just Jacob but the kings, David and the prophets. He will promise his presence on and on and on and even to us now. God comforts Jacob with his theology. His theology is informing everything that he does in his life. It isn't something that he trusts sometimes and then he trust, doesn't trust other times. Or it, it, It's something he wants all of his family to believe and not just some of the time but all of the time. Is that how we are? Or when things get difficult and hard, we begin to trust in other things, not in our covenant God. God is precious to us, isn't he? He says, I want to tell you something, Jacob. Your son Joseph is going to close your eyes, and you're going to make it to Egypt, and you're going to be united with your son Joseph. And when the day comes for me to take you home to be with me, he's going to close your eyes. This is such kindness to Jacob. And it's not simply that God is preparing him. It's he's to lead his people in this way. He's not just preparing Israel. He's also preparing Canaan. You see, God has removed Israel out of Canaan. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 15, God's people are only going to go back to the promised land until what? Until the iniquity of the Amorites is complete. Amorites is sort of a catch-all term for the Canaanite people. So God is preparing Israel by taking them out of the promised land. There he will grow and bless them. He's also preparing Canaan for the book of Joshua. Because the iniquity will be complete and God's people will come back into the promised land and there they will be the instrument of God's judgment to drive out the Canaanite people. Sometimes we read the book of Joshua and we're a bit horrified at what we read. All the slaughtering, all the killing. Well... Make sure we understand this in the context of the scriptures. They are wicked people. And this is how God is choosing to carry out his judgment and his justice upon them. He's preparing them as well. God's providence, as we've said so many times in Joseph's story, it's everywhere. God is controlling all things. This little group of people, this little group of 70 is going to explode. It's going to be 2 million. It's going to be today in the billions, isn't it? Why did God choose Joseph and Jacob and Abraham and this family? 
Well, God will say in Deuteronomy chapter 7, he will remind them as they're on the verge of going into this promised land, on the back end of all these things. And he will remind them, I didn't choose you because you were great. You know, you could have felt really good about yourself, but you ought not to. I chose you because I love you. Not because of who you are, not because you were great and wonderful. I chose you because of me. I chose you because of my kindness and my love for you. God is good, and we would be wise to remind ourselves of the same. He didn't choose us because we were great and influential and mighty and powerful. He chose us because he is merciful. He chose us in order to bless us and to make his face shine upon us and be gracious to us. He chose us for his glory and for his sake. In closing, let me just mention a few of the takeaways. This is one of those sermons you preach sometimes as a preacher that feels like very hodgepodgey. Like there's so many different application directions that you can go off. Let me, let me try to bring some of those things together. One, I hope you see the blessing of God's presence in your life. He's with you. So whatever it is you're going through right now, the difficult decision, the potential move that you have to make, the, the, the difficulty with a family member, he's with you. Pray that he would bring comfort in the midst of these trials. And not just that he would comfort you, that he would increase your faith. Because that's exactly what he's doing to Jacob and Jacob's family. Secondly, do you see the comfort of God's promises? The comfort that they bring unto him. It's a blessing, but the blessing is the comfort. The blessing is the growth. Thirdly, that God would give you endurance for these sufferings and trials. That you would see yourself as a stranger in a strange land, not meant to feel comfortable here, but also to not put the faith that you have on the shelf in certain circumstances, but to always live for him. And lastly, I hope you see that God chose you because he loves you. Namely, he loves you in and through his son, Jesus Christ. Pray that the Lord would add unto you today this kind of faith, that you could walk with him in the midst of uncertainty as, as Jacob does, that you could see his blessings, that they're not just true for other people or the people in the Bible, they're also true indeed for you. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for this reminder from your word this morning. We thank you for your kindness, oh Lord. We thank you for your patience with us. And Lord, we thank you for your presence. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.